0: Guy Mannering or the Astrologer by Sir Walter Scott Volume 1, Additional Note This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Additional Note Galwegian localities and personages, which have been supposed to be alluded to in the novel. An old English proverb says that more know Tom Fall than Tom Fall knows and the influence of the adage seems to extend to works composed under the influence of an idle or foolish planet. Many corresponding circumstances are detected by readers of which the author did not suspect the existence. He must, however, regard it as a great compliment that, in detailing incidents purely imaginary, he has been so fortunate in approximating reality as to remind his readers of actual occurrences it is therefore with pleasure he notices some pieces of local history and tradition which have been supposed to coincide with the fictitious persons incidents and scenery of guy mannering the prototype of dirk hatteraick is considered as having been a dutch skipper called yorkins this man was well known on the coast of galloway and dumfrieshire as sole proprietor and master of a buccar or smuggling lugger called the black prince being distinguished by his nautical skill and intrepidity his vessel was frequently freighted, and his own services employed, by French, Dutch, Manx, and Scottish smuggling companies. A person well known by the name of Buckar T., from having been a noted smuggler of that article, and also by that of Bogle Bush, the place of his residence, assured my kind informant Mr. Train, that he had frequently seen upwards of two hundred Lingto men assemble at one time and go off into the interior of the country, fully laden with contraband goods. In those halcyon days of the free trade, the fixed price for carrying a box of tea or bale of tobacco from the coast of Galloway to Edinburgh was fifteen shillings, and a man with two horses carried four such packages. The trade was entirely destroyed by Mr. Pitt's celebrated commutation law, which, by reducing the duties on excisable articles, enabled the lawful dealer to compete with the smuggler. The statute was called in Galloway and Dumfriesshire by those who had thriven upon the contraband trade, the burning and starving act. Sure of such active assistance on shore, Yorkins demeaned himself so boldly that his mere name was a terror to the officers of the revenue. He availed himself of the fears which his presence inspired on one particular night, when, happening to be ashore with considerable quantity of goods in his sole custody, a strong party of men came down on him. Far from shunning the attack, Hawkins sprung forward, shouting, Come on, my lads, Yorkin is before you. The revenue officers were intimidated and relinquished their prize, though defended only by the courage and address of one single man. On his proper element, Yorkins was equally successful. On one occasion he was landing his cargo at the Manxman's Lake near Kekubri when two revenue cutters, the pygmy and the dwarf, hove in sight at once on different tacks, the one coming round by the Isles of Fleet, the other between the point of Rubury and the Muckle Ron the dauntless free-trader instantly weighed anchor and bore down right between the luggers so close that he tossed his hat on the deck of the one and his wig on that of the other hoisted a cask to his main-top to show his occupation and bore away under an extraordinary pressure of canvas without receiving injury to account for these and other hairbreadth escapes popular superstition alleged that yorkins insured his celebrated bucka by compounding with the devil for one-tenth of his crew every voyage how they arrange the separation of the stock and the tithes is left to our conjecture. The Bucca was perhaps called the Black Prince, in honour of the formidable insurer. The Black Prince used to discharge her cargo at Luce, Balkary, and elsewhere on the coast, but her owner's favourite landing-places were at the entrance of the Dee and the Cree, near the old castle of Ruby, about six miles below Kekubri. There is a cave of large dimensions in the vicinity of Ruberi, which, from its being frequently used by Yorkins, and his supposed connection with the smugglers on the shore, is now called Dirk Hatterake's Cave. Strangers who visit this place, the scenery of which is highly romantic, are also shown, under the name of Gouger's Loop, a tremendous precipice, being the same, it is asserted, from which Kennedy was precipitated. Meg Merrilies is in Galloway considered as having had her origin in the traditions concerning the celebrated Flora Marshall, one of the royal consorts of Willie Marshall, more commonly called the Caird of Berulian, King of the Gypsies of the Western Lowlands. That potentate was himself deserving of notice from the following peculiarities. He was born in the parish of Kermichael about the year 1671, and as he died in Kirkcubry on the 23rd day of November 1792, he must then have been in the 120th year of his age it cannot be said that this unusually long lease of existence was noted by any peculiar excellence of conduct or habits of life willie had been pressed or enlisted in the army seven times and had deserted as often besides three times running away from the naval service he had been seventeen times lawfully married and besides such a reasonably large share of matrimonial comforts was after his hundredth year the avowed father of four children by less legitimate affections. He subsisted in his extreme old age by a pension from the present Earl of Selkirk's grandfather. Will Marshall is buried in Kirkby Church, where his monument is still shown, decorated with a scutcheon suitably blazoned with two tup's horns and two cutty spoons. In his youth he occasionally took an evening walk on the highway with the purpose of assisting travellers by relieving them of the weight of their purses. On one occasion the Caird of Berulian robbed the Laird of Bargally at a place between Carsefein and Dormellington. His purpose was not achieved without a severe struggle, in which the gypsy lost his bonnet and was obliged to escape, leaving it on the road. A respectable farmer happened to be the next passenger, and seeing the bonnet, alighted, took it up and rather imprudently put it on his own head. At this instant, Bargalli came up with some assistance, and, recognising the bonnet, charged the farmer of Bantobirik with having robbed him, and took him into custody. There being some likeness between the parties, Bargalli persisted in his charge, and though the respectability of the farmer's character was proved, or admitted, his trial before the circuit court came on accordingly. The fatal bonnet lay on the table of the court bargali swore that it was the identical article worn by the man who had robbed him and he and others likewise deponed that they had found the accused on the spot where the crime was committed with the bonnet on his head the case looked gloomily for the prisoner and the opinion of the judge seemed unfavourable but there was a person in the court who knew well both who did and who did not commit the crime this was the Caird of berulian who thrusting himself up to the bar near the place where bargali was standing suddenly seized on the bonnet, put it on his head, and, looking the laird full in the face, asked him, with a voice which attracted the attention of the court and crowded audience, "'Look at me, sir, and tell me by the oath you have sworn. Am not I the man who robbed you between Kersfairn and Dormellington?' Bargally replied, in great astonishment, "'By heaven! you are the very man!' "'You see what sort of memory this gentleman has,' said the volunteer pleader. "'He swears to the bonnet whatever features are under it. "'If you yourself, my lord, will put it on your head, "'he'll be willing to swear that your lordship was the party "'who robbed him between Casfairn and Dormellington.' "'The tenant of Bantaberic was unanimously acquitted, "'and thus Willie Marshall ingeniously contrived "'to save an innocent man from danger, "'without incurring any himself, "'since Bargally's evidence must have seemed to everyone "'too fluctuating to be relied on. "'While the King of the Gypsies was thus laudably occupied, his royal consort, Flora, contrived, as is said, to steal the hood from the judge's gown, for which offence, combined with her presumptive guilt as a gipsy, she was banished to New England, whence she never returned. Now I cannot grant that the idea of Meg Merrily's was, in the first concoction of the character, derived from Flora Marshall, seeing I have already said she was identified with Jean Gordon, and, as I have not the laird of Bargally's apology, for charging the same fact on two several individuals. Yet I am quite content that Meg should be considered as a representative of her sect and class in general, Flora as well as others. The other instances in which my Galovidian readers have obliged me by assigning to airy-nothing a local habitation and a name, shall also be sanctioned so far as the author may be entitled to do so. I think the facetious Joe Miller records a case pretty much in point, where the keeper of a museum, while showing, as he said, the very sword with which Balaam was about to kill his ass, was interrupted by one of the visitors, who reminded him that Balaam was not possessed of a sword, but only wished for one. "'True, sir,' replied the ready-witted Cicerone, "'but this is the very sword he wished for. The author, in application of this story, has only to add that, though ignorant of the coincidence between the fictions of the tale and some real circumstances, he is contented to believe he must unconsciously have thought or dreamed of the last, while engaged in the composition of Guy Mannering. End of Volume 1. Additional Note.